Welcome to Parenting Great Kids. This is episode number 178, and I'm your host, Dr. Meg Meeker. Do you ever look at your toddler or teenager who are having a temper tantrum and wonder, what in the world are they doing? Why would they get so upset about something that is so small. Well, learning about why kids feel the way they do and understanding what's going on in their minds is what we're going to talk about today. Alyssa Blask Campbell is my guest. She founded Seed and Sow, an organization that teaches parents, caregivers, and teachers how to raise emotionally intelligent kids. Alyssa is a teacher, parent, and an emotional development expert with a master's degree in early childhood education. She and her partner also created a method called collaborative emotion processing. And she's going to talk about that today. So Alyssa, I am so grateful you're here to join me on the podcast. Thanks for coming on. I'm really jazzed to be here with you. Great. You um, started an organization called Seed and Sow, and you're committed to teaching adults about emotional intelligence in kids. Now, that's kind of a buzzword now, uh, but for the parents who are out there who don't really know what it is, can you explain it, please? Yeah, for sure. You're right. It is super buzzwordy. And I'm jazzed that it's buzzwordy. Like, I'm really pumped that we're talking about emotional intelligence. And I think a lot gets lost in the shuffle. So we look at five components. We're looking at self-awareness, self-regulation, motivation, empathy, and social skills. And that those five make up emotional intelligence. And when we're looking at it, I'm looking at like how, what skill set does somebody have to recognize what's happening inside their body? What tools do they have to find that pause between reaction and response and um, to be able to regulate and choose their words next or choose that action next? What skills do they have to read the room? to recognize who they are talking to in different scenarios. Like how do we show up at school or with peers or with grandparents versus at home or in a restaurant, et cetera. What are we looking at for the motivation side of like intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation here? Like what is driving us? Are we looking for somebody else's um, rewards or praise to feel proud of ourselves, to feel a sense of accomplishment? Or are we building some of that internally? And then empathy. Are we able to step into somebody else's shoes, see someone else's perspective, especially when it differs from ours and from our experience? So that's what we're looking at. It feels really heavy and big when we talk about it in terms of raising emotionally intelligent humans. And for us, we're looking at not changing who kids are, but really shifting how adults experience kids' emotions so that we as the adults can show up and respond with intention. So you're talking about what you just described, of course, is emotional intelligence in kids, but I assume it's an emotional intelligence in adults as well, correct? Correct. Yeah. So... It seems to me that it's, it's all great what you just described, but parents who are parenting children come into parenting with their own baggage. And many of them, most I would think, have difficulty empathizing with their kids' feelings, um, gaining insight into what their kids are feeling, helping their kids identify their emotions, emotions and then stopping them and saying, you're feeling this, but you can't do that. So 
Do you usually start with kids or do you start with parents first? Where do you begin in this whole process of trying to teach kids emotional intelligence? Totally, Meg, you hit the nail on the head that we all come to the table with our own social programming, with our own biases, with our own childhood experiences and how our parents responded to us or our caregivers or our teachers, et cetera. And those leave imprints on us. And then I've said this before, but sometimes I open my mouth and my mom comes out and sometimes that's great, right? Like sometimes I would love to pass that on. And sometimes I've spent a lot of therapy dollars and a lot of time to try and undo that thing. And I don't want to pass it on. And so looking at like, how do we get to the space where we can discern, where we can notice like, oh, my mom, Margaret is her name. Margaret just came out and like, "Mm, don't want to pass that one on. How do I find that pause between my initial reaction and then my response? And it's hard. It's hard and we're not meant to do it perfectly. So when I, I have a master's in early childhood and a colleague, Lauren Staubel, and I co-created the Collaborative Emotion Processing Method, CEP, C-E-P for short. And we researched it across the U.S. We researched it in childcare um, settings with children, teachers, and parents. And we were looking at birth to age six. And it the SEP method has five components. And one is adult-child interactions. The other four are about us as the adult. Uh, so it's our adult self-awareness. What are we feeling in our body? How do you notice what's happening before it explodes, right? I think of it like a volcano where... I can start to notice, oh, my hands are tight or I'm feeling flushed right now or I'm starting to get clammy. Like I'm on edge. I see that my child's doing something that's triggering something inside of me. It's triggering a reaction, building that self-awareness. And then we are looking at self-care. So how are we taking care of ourselves throughout the day so that when that happens, when we have that reaction, we have the bandwidth to find that pause. Because when we are hungry, when we're tired, when we're overstimulated, when we're overwhelmed, when we're burnt out, it's really hard to be able to find that pause and notice what's happening inside. So we're looking at self-care and self-awareness. We're looking at uh, scientific knowledge, which for us is understanding the nervous system in terms of like mirror neurons, what's happening in i think of it like when a baby is laughing and it's the most delicious sound and it like fills you with that oxytocin feel good feeling can't help but smile and then when a kid is like throwing a tantrum on aisle four like also the same thing is happening inside you then like also then you're throwing a tantrum on aisle four and recognizing that you're not failing for feeling that that makes sense your body is designed to and when we can build tools for that awareness and that regulation then we can bring the calm we can we look at it as being a thermometer or being the thermostat you can either read the room and join it or you can set the temperature and helping folks as they start to build the awareness of what's happening build their regulation toolbox then take control of that and set that tone and set that energy And the last component is uncovering implicit bias. This is where we're looking into that social programming of what we're bringing to the table. What did we experience as a kid? Maybe there were certain ages where you were expected to stop crying or to have it all together or to figure it out or um, to only express certain emotions over others. So we're looking at um, all of that kind of like backlog, what is living inside of us and then how does it show up in the moment? And you're exactly right. We work with parents and caregivers and teachers first on 
identifying those things within us so that then in the moment, then we can go into the adult-child interactions of how do we respond in the moment? How can we talk to the child in front of us to build their toolbox? Uh, but we can't do that if we're not doing our own work too. So do you have to train parents before you train the kids or can you train them both at the same time? Yeah, so we're working with folks at the same time that they're working with kids and it's a process. It's like a, it's a journey. It's a commitment day in and day. You don't like do this and you're like, okay, check, check, check. Great. Now I'm good. Now forever, I'll just respond with intention. It's something we have to bring intention to every day that like when I wake up in the morning, my one-year-old wasn't like, oh, mom, are you ready for me to throw a tantrum right now? Like to have a meltdown? <laughs> like it's just going to happen. And it's going to happen all day long. And for me, it's a choice. I have to say like, all right, I'm going to commit to carving out time throughout the day to nourish myself, to make sure that I've eaten and not just his scraps from breakfast, to make sure that I've had enough water, to make sure that I say to him, buddy, I would love to read you that book. And my body needs a break. You can sit next to me and I can hold your hand while I read. You know, like carving out these little boundaries for ourselves all day long to pour into our nervous system. It's something that we're doing alongside building the kids toolbox. So we're really working with parents and teachers hand in hand while they're working with the kids as well. You know, when I think of many, most parents that I see in my practice, um, regardless of their kid's age, they're exhausted. They're overwhelmed. You know, we've got a lot of dual income households. We've got moms and dads who are working a lot of time. You know, sometimes their kids are in daycare. So how do they incorporate everything that you're talking about into their day when they're physically exhausted and they feel so stressed? Feel them. First of all, I'm right there with you. <laughs> we have a dual income household and kid in childcare. So I feel you. And for someone to acknowledge we're working within broken systems, that, yeah, we don't have access to adequate, affordable childcare. And so we have a lot of households that are working or working overtime or working extra jobs and things just to pay for life as it is. Um, we also, when we moved, I think it's rad that we have more women in the workforce than we've ever had. And when we switched to women working more and not being in the household as much and relying more on childcare support, we didn't adjust our societal systems. So before there was a stay at home mom who was taking care of the kids, was doing the dishes, was cleaning, was grocery shopping, preparing food, et cetera. And now we have outsourced childcare, which is incredible so that women can work if they want to. And these other systems of the household haven't been outsourced, right? We haven't figured that out societally yet. And so it is exhausting and overwhelming. And I just want to start with like, I'm there with you. And it makes sense to feel exhausted in the systems with, in which we live. And for me, it's about a lot of little choices. So it's not necessarily like a night out or a weekend away. It's Am I taking care of my body throughout the day? Maybe that's I'm going to pause from my computer or work or in between these meetings, instead of scrolling my phone while I go to the bathroom, I'm going to put it away. Or I, instead of checking off the next to-do list thing, am going to recognize there's forever going to be a to-do list. I don't know about you, but I've never gotten to the end of it. It always exists. And so I'm going to say, I'm going to build in, I'm going to build in these moments throughout the day where 
I am going to, sometimes for me, it's doing five jumping jacks, or I'm going to just pause and take 10 deep breaths. It's truly little things. It's like annoying how little they are because it feels like that shouldn't make such a big difference. And it does. It pours, we think of our nervous system as a battery and it's constantly draining throughout the day, just like your phone. You don't have to be using it and it will run out of battery. Now, if you're using the apps more and more and more and certain apps more than others, it drains faster and we need to recharge it throughout the day. And it's the same with us that we need to recharge throughout the day because it's automatically being drained just by being awake and alive. And it's, this is where I said, like, it's a choice. It's a choice to every day say, it's not convenient. It's not easy to fit into the schedule. And so looking at like, how can I build it in one minute increments to start or three minute increments? Not, I need a half an hour to go for a run multiple times a day in order to pour into my nervous system. I'm going to pause and take 10 deep breaths and that'll get me somewhere. It's like little snacks throughout the day. Let's back up to childcare, babysitters, and daycare as well, where you've got both parents working. If you're trying to build emotional intelligence in your kids um, and you're away from them eight hours a day, and I assume the daycare providers are not doing that, aren't you undoing what you're trying to do? So you're only building that into kids, say, you know, five o'clock at night to eight o'clock at night, but they're in daycare eight hours a day. It seems to me those both work against each other. So coming from early childhood, we actually have a certification program for early childhood educators. There are a lot of early childhood educators who are doing this work, who are reinforcing these tools that are happening at home. In fact, our seed certification, we have professional development for teachers in early ed, as well as a community platform to help them in an ongoing fashion. And then the parents get access to our Tiny Humans Big Emotions class so that everyone's doing this work together. Um, So I think first and foremost, like a lot of early childhood educators are working on this and are mindful of building these tools. And so there's that. And also it's never too little. Like if you see your kid for an hour every day, like that's enough to pour into them. Because what's happening is from the jump, kids are forming an attachment with their primary caregivers. And there are different types of attachment that they can form. The one that we're like striving for is called secure attachment. And this is where kids know that they are safe to be vulnerable, to break down, to have hard feelings, and that you as their adult can handle it that it's not going to be too much for you, that they can turn to you with their hard stuff and that they're not responsible for you. And you don't have to have 24 hours in a day to let them know this. When they come home from school and they're having a hard time, having the tools to be able to hold space for that and be their safe space to break down to is a beautiful gift. You don't have to have spent all day. In fact, my guess, if you're doing this work, you're going to get those hard things. Every single time I pick my child up from childcare, at some point in the afternoon, we get a meltdown about something that seems trivial, that is like the wrong color cup. And it's not about the cup. It's that he's been holding it together for somebody else all day long, and I'm his safe space to break down to. He doesn't need 24 hours to break down to me. He can do it pretty quickly. And let me know, like, I'm, I have all this bottled up inside and I need to release it to the person who I know can handle it 
and hold me through it. And so, yeah, I, it doesn't, you don't need all day long to do it. Um, and like I said, childcare educators are doing a beautiful job pouring into this as well. We can, it takes a village and we can do this together. It's not one parent or just two parents that are responsible for raising emotionally intelligent kids. Mm-hmm. You know, I think I agree with you. I think I'm thrilled that there's so much focus on um, helping early childhood ed people learn more. What I see in, you know, I don't, I don't live in the city. I'm sort of a small town is that most of the people who are taking care of kids eight hours out of the day don't know about this and they don't know about how to um, attend to a child's needs. You know, there may be one provider per four children. And, you know, as a, as far as attachment to an 18 month old or being able to teach them these things, it seems to me that a lot of these kids are just sort of left on their own during the day. And then mom or dad comes home in the evening how does a child sort of reconcile going f- from being sort of on their own and sort of paid attention to to then mom and dad paying attention to them at night? How do they, I mean, there's got to be a conflict in them. And how do you help them through that conflict? Yeah, so it's different relationships. And I'm going to disagree that that's what's happening in most of the folks. And a lot of my work is in early ed and with early childhood educators and whether it's, I'm also from a small town in upstate New York, and whether it's that small town or working in cities, I see educators all around us who are, there's such a huge focus on social emotional learning now that there's more professional development. I think what we are seeing are teachers who are under-resourced and underpaid, um, and so maybe strapped, but I do feel like more so than not, we're seeing kids in childcare facilities where this is a focus and teachers are trying to build these skills. And we just need to do a better job in supporting them with the ratios and capacity to do so. But for a kid who's experiencing it throughout the day, if they are feeling like, I mean, they're not going to get one-to-one attention, right? I don't, you don't need one-to-one attention in the same way that a family might have multiple children and the parents might not be paying attention to just one child at the end of the day. These kids can learn that there are certain spaces where they can break down for different things, right? Like my child might learn that it's a safe space at school with his childcare provider to break down when he's feeling sad, that she's really good at holding space for his sadness and giving him those snuggles and providing that love and attention and connection. Maybe when he's feeling scared, that triggers something in her and she's not great at holding space for that. Maybe that's hard for her. And so maybe at home, we get a lot of that where like when he's feeling scared, he turns to us for those things or offloads those feelings throughout the day. So they'll just differentiate like, who can I turn to for what, which is a beautiful social skill. We don't want people just like offloading all of their stuff to everybody. It should be differentiated between like, who are my secure attachment caregivers or my attachment caregivers who can hold space for things? And what in what ways can they do that? How can I show up to receive love and make sure that I'm taken care of and safe? And kids are so good at learning that early on. Um, how do I stay safe and loved? And that's really, so during the day, they might hold certain things together and then offload those things at night, but that's not a bad thing. Parents, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Alyssa Blask-Campbell. We need to take a quick break, but do not go anywhere. I'll be right back. 
Welcome back to Parenting Great Kids. My guest today is Alyssa Blask Campbell. You talk about birth to five being very critical years. Why are those years so much more important, say, than eight to 10? Yeah, we form 90% of our brain by the time we're five. So all those like patterns and habits, if you think about when a newborn comes out, right? Like what their skill set is and all the things they can't yet do. And then you fast forward to like a two-year-old. They're totally different humans. They can all of a sudden walk and they're talking. They can feed themselves in certain ways. They're building so many skills so fast. They're making sense of the world around them. So from birth to three, we're forming 80% of the brain and then by five, 90%. And so when we're sending kids off to school, they have a kind of imprint for how do I navigate the world? How do I show up in different social situations? What are the skill sets that I need to enter into a social group to go up to somebody and say hi? Or what do I do when I'm feeling scared? What do I do when I'm feeling overwhelmed? Maybe it's hitting and kicking and biting for a little while as they learn new skills. And all as this is all happening, it's really like, how do I show up in the world? And then when we they're five, we often send them off to kindergarten. And now they start to build some more skills, more academic focused, a lot of new cognitive skills, really content based, I think of it as like, I don't care if a three year old knows the life cycle of a butterfly, if they don't know what they're feeling inside their body and what to do with that. Um, they're going to get all the content in the world down the road. And we can constantly be learning new content. I just the other day was like, I really want to learn how to code, right? Like we can always learn new content. What's harder is to undo or form new habits around how we show up in relationship throughout the day to day. And that's what we're really working on forming birth to five. You know, I think that kids have a capacity because of their cognitive limitations compared to say a five-year-old to a 15-year-old, 15 to a 25-year-old, because we know that, you know, the brain size is developed, but there's a lot about the brain that is underdeveloped. Um, how do you teach a five-year-old or an eight-year-old to be able to A, identify their feelings, but more importantly, identify their feelings and then choose what they're going to do with those feelings because like a three-year-old has a very short memory they'll feel something and you'll teach him okay you can do this with it or but you can't hit mom but maybe two hours later forget that whole concept so how do you train a child to consistently identify their feelings and then choose what they're going to do with those feelings or how they're going to react yeah, so what we're looking to teach here first is self-awareness in the same way that we help kids start to notice cues in their body for when they're hungry, when they're tired, when they're feeling cold, when they're feeling warm. Oh, is your body feeling cold? Would you like a jacket? We can ask a three-year-old that and they can generally give us an answer. We can also help them start to tune into those skills around feelings. If we think of like butterflies in my stomach, if I say I have butterflies in my stomach, you know I'm feeling a little excited or nervous. But imagine if we had phrases like that for when you're scared, when you're sad, when you're upset, when you are embarrassed, when you're disappointed. Like if we could help kids start to tune into what does it feel like in my body when I'm experiencing a feeling? That's the work that we're doing first. So I had a little four-year-old who was hitting a lot. And that was his like reaction to a lot of emotions was to hit or to kick. 
And so what we did first and foremost, I wasn't teaching him, you don't hit or kick in the moment. He knows that. But when you're in a dysregulated state, in the same way that if I tell a parent, like, don't yell at your kid, great, they don't want to. In the moment, they're not saying, I'm choosing to yell at my kid because this is what I think I should do. In the moment, they're reacting to something happening inside their body. And same with kids. It's a reaction. And what I want to help them do is notice what happens when they have that reaction so that then they can find that pause. Same with adults, same with kids. And it's not as much of like they don't remember what to do when I tell them it from this moment to the next as habits are hard to build and to break. And they take time and consistency. In the same way that I don't read to an infant expecting them to read back to me tomorrow. I read to them, expecting them to read back to me in years. For this work, same thing. Like we're going to be practicing and practicing and practicing. And practice looks different at different ages and stages. But with my little four-year-old who was hitting, we started with like, oh, wow, I hear your voice is getting loud and your shoulders are going up to your ears and your fists are so tight. Gosh, you look frustrated. I'm helping him start to notice as it's building. When somebody would come into his play space or when he would be getting his coat on to go outside and he would get frustrated and his fists would get really tight and he would start to yell. And I would help him notice the things that are happening, the things I'm seeing, those body cues. And then after a few months of us doing this day in and day out, I would, he started to say, my fists are so tight, my shoulders are up to my ears, my voice is so loud and I'm frustrated. And then with that, then he could make a choice. Like, okay, I now know what's happening. I'm noticing as it, it as it's building. And now I'm going to take some deep breaths or I'm going to do 10 frog jumps or I'm going to move my body. I'm going to ask for a hug. I am going to hop on the swing for a minute. We have a whole bunch of then coping strategies for them to regulate that nervous system. And then we come back to problem solving or conflict resolution. But it all starts with that awareness. And they're capable of so much more than we give them credit for. My little guy, um, like my own child, was six months when we started using visuals and nine months when he started going and grabbing the visual to bring to us to let us know he was having a hard feeling. Uh, It happens so much younger when we're practicing it. And by a year, he could squeeze his fist when he was frustrated. It doesn't mean that every time he's frustrated, he does that, but he can start to build those cues. This is what's happening inside. And this is what I know I can do. I can squeeze them and let them go or I can stomp my feet instead of hitting. But it's practice. It's day in and day out practice of body awareness. So talk about the four-year-old who's in the grocery store and they don't get the chocolate bar that they want and they throw themselves on the floor and they're screaming and screaming. What does a parent do in the moment and what does a parent do in the months following that? Yeah, totally. Um, So in the moment, I am going to drop down and be like, oh man, you really wanted to have that chocolate bar. I totally get that. Do you want to hear a story about a time that I couldn't have a chocolate bar and I really wanted one too? For some kids, that connection is what they're going to look for. They want to hear that story. For some kids, they can't take that in. So if they're a kid that can't take that in the moment, I'm going to validate for them. And then I'm just going to let them know I'm here with you to move your body when you're ready. Sometimes I'm carrying a four-year-old out of the grocery store kicking and screaming. And that's fine. You are not failing for feeling. You're not failing if your kids are feeling. In fact, I would much rather see somebody carrying their kicking and screaming child out of the grocery store than just giving into the boundary or um, just trying to make it go away. What I want to let them know is it makes sense to feel you're safe and allowed to feel. And so 
for the kid who it doesn't work to just connect and provide the social story for, when we get out, I'm going to either, if they're a kid who benefits from deep touch or like big body movement, I would be like doing deep squeezes, like deep squeezes on their arms, down their body. I might give them a really snug hug. Um, or I might say, I wonder how many frog jumps it'll take us to get from this door to our car door. I bet it'll take us 10. Do you want to try? I'm getting them to move their body in the moment so they can regain access to their whole brain. So they can start to regulate the nervous system. And then we'll talk about the behavior later. We'll talk about what else to do later. They're not in a place to learn. It's not a teaching moment right now. It's a regulating moment. It's a soothing moment. And so then down the road, say we're on in the car ride home and they're chilling in the back seat. And I'm like, man, when we were in the store, you really wanted to have that chocolate bar. And I saw you throw your body on the ground and you were pounding on the floor. It's really, really disappointing. I totally get that. I feel disappointed sometimes too. When I feel disappointed, my chest gets really tight and my shoulders go up to my ears. I'm giving them my body cues so that they can start to learn theirs too. And I might, depending on their age, ask them like, what happens in your body when you're feeling disappointed? If they don't know, then I'm going to start to tell them what I see. I noticed when you were feeling disappointed that your voice got really loud and your face was really scrunched and your shoulders went up to your ears. Oh man, when you're feeling disappointed, you can. Now I'm giving them what they can do. You can stomp your feet. You can say, mom, I really wanted to have that chocolate bar and I feel really mad at you that I can't have it. You can squeeze your fists and let them go. You can bring your shoulders up to your ears. You can go, oh, we're going to let them know what they can do. What is a pro-social way to express this? Because what's not realistic is that they're going to say, hey, mom, I feel really disappointed right now. And I would like to talk about it. Like that's not how any of us, when I'm angry, when I'm mad at my husband and I'm frustrated with my mom or my mother-in-law, whatever, I'm not like, oh, yeah. Let me very calmly communicate all of this. It's not how it works. They're going to feel a rush of emotion and adrenaline and cortisol. And we have to give them an appropriate outlet for them, an appropriate way to communicate that. And it's not going to be in a regulated tone all the time. So to figure out like what works in different scenarios. So what do you do with the fifth grader who's acting out at school all the time? Teachers are ready to kick him out. Something deep may be going on at home, something very disturbing for him. Parents have no idea what it is. What do you do with a child like that who will come in and you say, you know, he's acting out all the time, he's a bully, kids don't like him, um, and he's going to get kicked out of school. Where do you start with a child like that, and how do you help them tap into their emotion and regulate it, but also to understand where it comes from? Because I would, I would think with an older child, they need to know where their bad behavior is coming from. Yeah, I do. first and foremost, I would help them find a therapist um, because what I'm hearing if at that age we're having like big emotions with no what feels like for them no safe space to turn, I would want to give them a safe space to turn um, so that they have someone that can help them process what they're experiencing and to know that it's okay to feel the way that they're feeling and that it makes sense to feel that way. That, yeah, it is embarrassing when you're at school and everybody has this new thing and you don't have it. I get that. And when you're starting to feel embarrassed, 
here are some things that are happening in your body, helping them. Honestly, we're going to come back to the same, whether I'm working with an adult or a tiny human, we're going to come back to what are you noticing in your body? And because you can't regulate what you're not aware of. And as what what I want to help them do though, is connect the like behavior to the emotion. So I'm feeling embarrassed. And then this behavior helps me feel in control again. And here's something else I can do to help feel in control again. Um, here's something help that something else that helps me feel safe, whether it's emotionally or physically safe. Socially safe is a big one when we're looking at bullying. Uh, and they don't really have to know like what's triggering it, where it's coming from, as much as like, here's how it shows up, and then here's how it's coming out, and here's another option for that. When we are looking at emotional regulation, we're first looking at sensory regulation, so that nervous system regulation. I'm not going to emotion coach a child who's dysregulated. I'm not going to be like empathizing and talking all about the scenario and processing this thing with them. I'm going to be jumping in and helping them get out of their body and back into their brain. So I'm going to help them calm their nervous system in the same way that if I'm like fired up by something my husband just did and he tries to like have a real conversation with me about it, I'm not ready. I need to calm before I can have that conversation. Same with our kids. So often we're trying to have conversations when they're not in a space to do so. And so with the the kiddo who doesn't have a safe space where they don't have a space to talk about these things or process them, I'm going to start there. The next support system I would build is an occupational therapist in that mix, an integrative OT if possible. Um, And they would be helping the child learn what's happening in their body and then what helps them regulate. You know, kids, when they transition from summer to school or school to vacation or maybe, you know, one home to another, I think it's challenging for them and it's also challenging for parents. So what tips would you give parents, say, to kids who are starting school for the first time, maybe preschool or kindergarten, or who are going back to school after a long summer break? Yeah. So I have a five episode podcast series on this that are like mini bite size. And then we have a full workshop on it, but I'll give you some like tips. Essentially I can go into this for two hours, but we, what I want to focus on first are visual aids, whether they are one or they're 16, showing them a calendar of here's the day, the first day of school. And here's what today is so that they're not in their head thinking like, is it tomorrow? Is it tomorrow? Is it tomorrow? Is it today? Um, So that they have, we use visual aids as adults all the time. We use clocks, we use calendars, we have to-do lists, we have checklists all around us that let us know like when things are happening. So we don't have to keep track of all this information in our brain. I want to give that gift to kids. So we're going to use calendars. I'm going to build out for especially younger kids, a visual story. So I asked my child's teacher for pictures of the school and the classroom, for pictures of her, any pictures that she can share of the space, the playground, the whatever. And I just put them together in a book and we would look at them over and over so that he could see like where he's going. And then when his first day is at school, he knows like, oh, that's where I hang my coat and this is where I can play and this is what the playground looks like. So it doesn't all feel new because new for our brain feels unsafe. It doesn't know what to expect. It says run away. It says react. And the more that we could build in like, oh, there's comfort, there's awareness. I'm a little bit um, informed on what's coming next or what to expect. 
the more the brain is at ease and says like, okay, this is a safe thing. So using those visuals is huge and doing that, what we call pre-teaching, where we're looking at the books ahead of time. We're talking about it ahead of time and not in a big, like, we're going to have a whole conversation, but just dropping it in. Like, man, I remember one time when I was going to second grade and I'd never been in second grade before. And I had never had Mrs. Cole as a teacher. And I was so nervous because I knew what I was doing in first grade. And I really loved having Mrs. Page as my teacher. And I was nervous to meet somebody new and have new kids in my classroom. Huh? It can feel really nerve wracking to do something new, huh? Anyway, and then just like going into regular conversation. <laughs> I love the fact that you're basically sort of walking kids through what's going to happen. And I think that a lot of anxiety comes from the anticipation of the unknown. I know it does for me, and I think it'd be a lot uh, worse for kids. My guest has been Alyssa Blast Campbell, and I thank you so much for all the information that you have shared with us. I think Parents are going to need to listen to the show a couple of times to digest it all. So how can parents find out about you, your classes, your podcast, everything? Totally. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is, I could have these conversations all day long. You can find us at seed and so seed dot and dot so S E W on Instagram or seed and so S E W dot org. And right from there, when you go to seed and so dot org, there's, different tabs, whether you're a parent, you're a teacher, you're a childcare provider, et cetera, that'll take you to the resources that make sense for you. So um, parents tab will take you right to our workshops, our classes. We have Tiny Ems Big Emotions and our reparenting class, which is how you do this work as an adult that we sell as a bundle. That's our best-selling um, course bundle are those two together. But then we have a bunch of other ones that are really topic specific. If you're looking for something like that, like highly sensitive kids, etc. And then our Instagram and then our podcast is Voices of Your Village. Awesome. 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 Thank you. You've given us a lot. Alyssa, thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, parents, I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with Alyssa Blass Campbell. I don't know about you, but every time I do a podcast, I walk away going, wow, I never thought of that. So I hope you feel like that today. Let's go over my points to ponder. One, use the word why more. Whenever your child acts up, your tendency is to simply react. And you either get mad or you reprimand your child or something else. But if you train yourself to stop and ask, why is your child acting the way he is? You'll find that you're more patient, empathetic, and have a calmer way of reacting. And you're more likely to get a peek into what's going on in your child's head. Why are they doing what they're doing? Two, pause before you react. When your child acts up, take a big, deep breath and force yourself to wait five or 10 seconds before you respond. This will help you stay calm and it'll give you a few more minutes to ask yourself, why is he having the temper tantrum? Why is he crying? Why is he so upset at his sister that he's going to whap her on the head with a toy? So take some time and pause before you react. Three, ask him questions. After a child has a meltdown or a strong response to something, let him calm down. And by the way, 
don't force him to calm down because you can't unless you threaten him. And that's never a good idea. Then ask him questions like, well, just then, were you feeling mad or were you frustrated or were you sad? Very simple terms. This will help both you and your child gain greater insight into what he feels when he's upset. And then eventually it will help him learn to control himself better. I want to thank my guest, Alyssa Blass Campbell, for joining me on the show today. You can find out more about Alyssa by going to Seed and Sow. That's the word seed, S-E-E-D, and the word sow, S-E-W, dot com, Seed and Sow. Be sure to follow her on social media as well. Just search for Seed and Sow in your internet browser. Now let's recap my three points to ponder. One, use the word why more? Two, pause before you react. And three, ask him questions. And remember, check out our brand new, really fun, fabulous movie, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters at PureFlix. Go to pureflix.com. If you need encouragement, go to meekerparenting.com. And remember, parents, until next time, great kids are raised, not born. <laughs>